The Portia Adams series is a unique and very entertaining take on Sherlock Holmes from author Angela Misery. Her latest, No Matter How Improbable, is being released today. In a world where hundreds of new books are released every day, how can readers find yours? I'm Stephen Campbell. I'm the CEO of Camven Media. What we do is provide digital assets and strategies to help authors find and keep new readers and fans. That's the way I pay the bills. But in this show, you and I indulge our shared love of mysteries and crime novels by spending time with the people who write them. Are you ready? Let's get this show rolling. Welcome back to CrimeFiction.fm, where we bring the authors of today's best books directly to you. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and I'm here with Angela Misery, the author of No Matter How Improbable, the third book in her wonderful Portia Adams Mystery Slash Adventure series, and the book is being released today. Angela, welcome to CrimeFiction.fm, and congratulations on the release. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to chat with you. I heard you on another podcast that I listened to for business purposes. Uh, listeners might know who Chris Brogan is. I tune into his podcast for business advice from time to time, and I was so excited to hear that he was going to interview a fiction author, and it turned out to be someone who wrote books in a genre that I enjoy, and you were so engaging, and the stories sounded so good that I, I had to reach out to you, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. Well, I love it, and I love Brogan. I mean, we've been friends for a very long time, and he really does bring the, the best in everyone. <laughs> that he does. He yeah. does. He's a, he's a very engaging guy. Well, let's, let's talk about your series and your, seri your, your protagonist, Portia Adams. What really captivated me about this is initially is where she lives at 221B <laughs> Baker Street in oh, London. Oh, you've heard of it. You've heard of 221 <laughs> Baker Street. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about... Portia and sort of set the series up for re or for listeners, if you would. Okay, so Portia is a Canadian girl living in 1930s Toronto who loses her mother, and it's very traumatic for her. She's um, a little bit on the spectrum. She's very introverted. She really doesn't have any friends other than her mother. She's a very observant but um, isolated girl, uh, 19 years old, as I said, and she loses her mother. And at the reading of her mother's will, she discovers two things that entirely surprise her, which she's not used to being surprised. She's a very observant woman. Uh, firstly, she inherits somehow a guardian she's never met named Irene Jones, who's from New York and totally outside of her realm of, you know, people she's dealt with in her life. And secondly, she inherits a townhouse in downtown London. So with nothing to hold her in Toronto... And with the encouragement of this uh, new and mysterious guardian, they travel to uh, London to see what this townhouse is all about. And she doesn't even, she's, you know, grasping the whole thing. She's slowly, you know, coming to terms with it when she walks up to the front door and it's 221B Baker Street, which she only knows uh, because it's famous for Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson, who worked in that office uh, about 40 years ago. So this is the first she gets to see that she's inherited. And then, of course, this starts a whole adventure for her of finding out why she inherited it, who this woman is, what's going on, why did her mother not tell her anything ever. So it's, it's a huge deal for her, and it starts the adventure of that first book, Jewel of the Temps. And she's off in London. She has this guard, guardian that she's never met before, yeah. as you said. It's, the, the guardian comes from a completely different world. She's wealthy. She's worldly. 
Uh, she's she's a fascinating character, and we learn more about her through the course of the series. And, you know, she's kind of plopped down in the middle of London where she doesn't know anyone, but she does have these unusual gifts of, as you said, she notices things. Things don't surprise her. Yeah, so she has a lot of skills that you will recognize from the original Sherlockian and uh, descriptions from Dr. Watson, that she's very observant, she's very deductive, she's very um, able to see fine detail and, and focus in on those things, sometimes to the detriment of her social abilities. Like she often goes into a crowd and is so focused on stuff that she's not listening or not paying attention. And that's something um, that I really wanted her to have when she walked into Baker Street, because she comes unarmed. She's a 19-year-old Canadian girl, fish out of water in every single way you could imagine, um, trying to establish herself in a whole new world that doesn't really see women the way that I want her to be seen. So she had to come in with some skills. All right. Now, why did you choose this particular setting, time, Mm -hmm. character for for this series? This is your first series of, of fiction, right? That's right. Okay. So why, why this? I always knew that I wanted to write a female detective. I, you know, I was a massive fan of Sherlock. I was a massive fan of Nancy Drew, uh, Agatha Christie's, uh, Miss Marple, all of those. I've read pretty much everything that you've probably read in Mm -hmm. the mystery department. So I knew I wanted to write about a Canadian girl. I knew I wanted to make her under 30 because I wanted to I wanted you to, her to learn at the same time that we're learning. Um, So I already knew those things. What I didn't know was what her personality was going to be. So I very much based it on, as as most authors, most successful authors do, on a bit of my personality because I know myself well, right? So this is is very close to what I was like at 18 and 19. Mm -hmm. I was very bookish. I didn't really understand social situations. I was very observant to the point that I, I would get focused on things and unable to push myself away from them. I was very misunderstood. So you're going to see a lot of me in in Portia, um, I set her in 1930 because I'm fascinated by that time between the great wars. Like the first world war is over. You don't really know that the second world war is over, is coming. Um, and it's just this, this revolutionary time for women because they're out of the house and they're about to come even more out of the house. They become more relevant to society because they're outside of the house. They're wearing trousers. They're getting the vote. Like all, all mm-hmm. these revolutionary things are happening. So I f- I'm fascinated by that time period. I, I like to write in that time period. I like to read in that time period, too. So that's why it's set there. 221 Baker Street is obvious, right? I mean, if you're going to place a detective anywhere in history, <laughs> I want to go work out of Baker Street. I mean, that's why. All right. Of the people who, who read the book or the people who discover the book, how many discover it because of the, the Sherlock Holmes relationship? I'd say about half. Half, um, I mean, if, if, if you look at my audiences, uh, my fans, it's about half people under 30 and mm-hmm. half people over. So the under 30s are usually, interestingly, introduced to Sherlock through me, which is really a weird way to do it. Because uh, they'll come to me and be like, uh, this Irene Adler, I looked her up on Wikipedia. She's attached to a different story. I'm like, absolutely, she's attached to a different story. Go read them. <laughs> Go read the originals. You're going to love them. If you love this, you're going to love that. So I'm introducing a whole generation of little fans to uh, Sherlock and his world. Um, and then, of course, I've got this massive following from all my friends and all the tribe that I've been a part of for decades of people who love Sherlock and will read anything written into Baker Street. Now, did you did you have to do any specific research on the Sherlock canon before doing this or had you already read them all and you just sort of knew the story? 
I had read them all. I did my senior thesis out of university on uh, on Sherlock Holmes, so I did a psychoanalysis uh, of Sherlock Holmes. I postulated that he was bipolar. Um, I got an A, just so you know. <laughs> um, so I, I had done a lot of research in my 20s, but yes, before I set out to describe Baker Street and to talk about a lot of the personality stuff, I went back over my notes. I reread the whole canon. Um, I read a lot of other pastiche written about Sherlock Holmes because a lot of the pastiche actually uses those two characters, Holmes and Watson. Mm -hmm. So I read a lot of that stuff about what people used. I also did a lot of research on the location um, as it was described in the books because I, I knew if I wanted Portia working out of Baker Street, I needed to know the area of where she was supposed to be working. And how hard is it writing Sherlock Holmes when... You know, we've all seen the movies, whether it's Basil Rathbone for people that are my age or the PBS shows uh, from, from Britain or the CBS show. We've all seen it. We all know what 221B Baker Street looks like. Yeah. How hard is it to, to actually build a, a fictional setting around that where we have these expectations? Well, I keep reminding myself that this is a fictional world, <laughs> so I don't need to be held by the same, you know, structures. Like when I write about Scotland Yard, I'm a lot more true to Scotland Yard because mm -hmm. it's a real place. Baker Street, as you know, is is not a real place. It's a it's a museum now. Um, so yeah, so I, I don't have to be that careful with it. For example, 221B Baker Street was supposed to be a townhouse. 221A is another townhouse in the original Arthur Conan Doyle's. In mine, 221B is the upstairs. 221A is the downstairs. So, for example, I took some liberties there. I don't think that I need to be that married to the original uh, setting as much as I as much as people want to be. I think if you're writing about Holmes and Watson and you're actually taking those characters, you might need to be a little more. Mm -hmm. But with me, I feel like you know things would have changed in the 40 years since they left right. Baker Street. You're right, and th and there's a police officer living right downstairs. Uh, what what a fortunate coincidence! <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> You know what? Again, this goes back to her being 19 years old in 1930. I knew that she would need someone to get her into the cases. Mm -hmm. uh, so Sherlock would have been approached by Lestrade and the rest of Scotland Yard. She would not be. So she needed someone to bring her into that world. So I gave her a constable who lives downstairs and is her tenant. And I didn't mean for him to be, but he became more of her Watson than a Lestrade. I originally thought he would be like a Lestrade, a, a guy who would never really take her seriously, but then slowly come to appreciate her, but constantly be the guy that was catching up. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's turned out that that Brian Dawes, Constable Brian Dawes downstairs, he contributes to both her learning and to uh, her fame because he brings her along. He includes her in everything and he takes her very seriously because he admired Sherlock and Watson. So he brings that to the he brings that to um, her life, which she didn't have because until she got there, she didn't even know what was going on, why she was inheriting Baker Street. He's lived there his whole life, and she has the fun of discovering all this stuff because a lot of the case books are there, and there are things up in the attic. Um, now you've taken the idea of of case books and and used them in the series. So a, a given novel is not one long story; it's three case books. Yeah. And this was something I had to argue with with pretty much everyone. Mm -hmm. When I first when I first wrote it, I wanted it to be like it came out in the Strand, right? Like the Strand had short stories mm -hmm. and they were cases and they were their own thing and they came out every month or every edition. That's kind of how I always envisioned it and how I write them. Um, but I've had a lot of people, agents, um, publishers come back to me and say, we really want a fully blown out, like take Jewel of the Thames, just that case book and blow it out to 70,000 words. 
I don't think it is 70,000 words. I just don't. I think the mysteries are part of her story, but also part of it is the larger arc of her learning something over the story. So I fought it pretty hard, and I thankfully found a publisher who was behind me in my, in my, um, in my goal of making three casebooks in each story. Uh, and I really like it. I feel like it's more mysteries, so it's, it's more fun for me as an audience member. I like to read more mysteries. Well, I, I'll share a little story with, with listeners. You and I connected via email, and yeah. you sent me a copy of the new book, and I started reading it, and I realized very quickly that the story had evolved and I wanted to go back and read from the beginning. So mm-hmm. I went back and started with the first book and worked my way through. I got I, I reached the end of the, the first case book. It went to the second case book, and I'm like, hmm, I wonder why she did that. And then I'm like, oh, well, of course, that's the way it was done back that's then. Right. I mean, that's the way the original Sherlock Holmes stories were written. They were written as, you know, not short stories, but longer short stories. Yeah, like cases. They yes. were cases. yes. And so it made perfect sense to me, but I could see where you'd get pushback. I did. I definitely got pushback. But from the schools and the libraries and the teachers, they love it because they can teach a case mm-hmm. in a 45-minute in a class. They can't teach a whole book. So they love that they can break down a case in, in one thing. So I've gotten some really good feedback about it, and people are like, that was brilliant. And I'm like, it wasn't. It was done, you know, in 1892 or whatever. <laughs> and Arthur Conan Doyle came up with the format. It works still. So, Yeah, surprise, surprise. Something that worked back then by uh, someone who was a very, very talented writer uh, still works today. Um, exactly. th- let's talk about a couple of other things. You host a podcast, and I, you know, I find this stuff by doing research. You host a podcast, and it's essentially like about current events, women's issues, technology. Uh, nothing could be further from what you write about. Why, why are, are these two parts of, of your work so separate? So I, it's a funny thing because I spent most of my life, write, my life writing nonfiction because I wrote news for CBC mm-hmm. for about 14 years. And then I switched and started writing fiction. So these are the two parts of my life. I, I do nonfiction, which is news, um, digital journalism. I teach digital journalism. And then there's the fiction part of my life where I write about mysteries and I read about mysteries. That's and, just, it's two halves. And historical mysteries. So when you're writing, how deep into the setting and the characters do you get? Uh, I try to get all the way in. So when I'm writing about Portia, I'll often talk like her, and it'll drive people crazy. <laughs> How hard is it to to realize, and, and maybe it's no longer hard, maybe after 15 minutes it wasn't hard, but you're so personally into current technology, and to have none of that available to Portia, um, it, it's probably a blessing and a curse both. You know what? It's I make a lot of assumptions sometimes. Like I, I assume that she has things like a flashlight or, uh, you know, like like even basic things. We're not even talking like technology from this decade. Um, so I have to go back and check into it and make sure that she actually does have access to those things. But I don't have trouble. Like uh, I read so much historical fiction that I'm able to place myself back in that time and just take all of that crap out. Because the other thing is that Sherlock never depended on it. So mm-hmm. Portia doesn't. Portia doesn't really depend on technology. She has a magnifying glass, and that's all she needs. And I love, at least in, in the first book, because that's all I've read, the, the time frames for the stories. It's not like so many mysteries today. Because of technology, uh, we insist that they be solved in a 24-hour period or a 60-minute period, depending on, on how we're, we're viewing the story. And this is, you know, she'll get an idea, and then maybe a week later she'll act on it kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a, it is a completely different world. 
Well, it's a very Sherlockian world again. Yes. It's it's very Sherlock. Those things went over weeks. Like Bask- How do the Baskervilles goes over a week, right? So uh, actually more than a week if you start with when the first attacks began. Um, I, I don't I don't feel like I need to rush her. I feel like I need to be realistic. And most real crimes and real solution of crimes takes years, not even weeks and months. It takes years to solve crimes. And how much how much of your stories w- would you describe as like Portia versus the mystery? You know, the mm. character versus the mystery. That's a good question. To be honest, um I write an objective for Portia for each story. So, for example, for the first one, the objective was come to grips with who you are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I write the mysteries because I'm a mystery fan. So I write the fun mysteries. And then I will write her arc over them. So I'd say about 50-50, I hope. I'm aiming for 50-50. That's what it felt like to me was about 50-50. And how far out do you have the arc? How far does it go in your mind? I've got her to to the Second World War. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, good. She's go- she's going to go to war, my girl. All right. Now, who are you writing these books for? Because I see in the Amazon description for you, I think they might even just be hashtags. One of the things was YA mysteries. I think uh, yeah. for, for listeners who might not know, that's young adult mysteries. I am not a young adult. Neither am I. <laughs> I write them for me. Okay. And I love to read mysteries, and I like to read clean mysteries, so there's no sex. There's no real violence on screen in a Portia book. Um, very early on, my publisher said she wanted to, mar- wanted to market it as YA, and I said, well, it's a popular field. I don't mind. I've had publishers in the States say we'd like to market this as an adult book, and I'm like, that's fine, too. We can change the covers up and do something different. I don't think it's defined. I really don't. Um, I don't pick my books based on the genre they're cataloged in in the bookstore. That's not how I pick my books. Mm-hmm. I pick them usually on friends', friends recommendation, finding them on Google, hearing them on podcasts, those kind of things. Yeah. So I don't worry a lot about what is categorized as. What I will say is it's clean. I I find myself constantly reading books and then finding out later how they're categorized and going, hmm, if I had known that, I probably wouldn't have read this book. But (laughs) by not knowing it, I I read it and loved it. And uh, an example, and I can't think of the author's name, but I had been reading cozy mysteries for years without realizing I was reading cozy mysteries. Yeah. And And again, that's a definition by the publisher and the bookstore. Yes. All right, let's close with one last thing. You are obviously a very artistic person because I have seen your YouTube videos. You, you teach writing, and you do these little YouTube videos, very short, very to the point, about how to do a specific thing with writing, uh, you know, whether it you know, be dialogue or adding tension, things like that. They're very short, but it's not you talking at the camera it's your hand writing on a whiteboard. And first off, I am so impressed that you did these yourself. <laughs> I assume that you paid someone to do this. But walk us through how to do it. I'll put a link to one of the videos in the, in the show notes so people can see it. But walk us through how you actually do it and what the process is like. So it's called One Fictitious Moment. And what I do is I come up with the script. So I'll write out a piece of script because the text is the easiest part. So it'll be like how to write a series as opposed to how to write a single book. And I'll come up with some interesting points in the writing craft of writing a series, the things you have to think about, the things to keep in mind. And then for each like section, I'll kind of think about what, what, what would I visualize that at? So would it be a man standing at a podium giving a speech? Okay, if that's the vision, then I know I need to record that. So I'll record the speech and then I'll run it behind me while I'm standing at the whiteboard. 
Um, I can't believe you thought that I paid someone for that because if you look at the difference between the first one and the latest one, <laughs> it's a massive learning <laughs> for me about, about how to edit and how to do all that stuff. So if you want to know what the process is, you should watch it start to finish. It's only five minutes long because it's one fictitious moment each. But so then I'll go up on the whiteboard and draw it and then I'll record it and do the whole thing. And then I'll pull it all into um, iMovie mm -hmm. and speed it up. That's all I do. And then if I don't like a piece, I'll chop it out and do that part on the whiteboard again and then put it back in. So it takes about a couple hours to record and edit that whole thing. Um, and I'm really looking for new ideas. So if anyone has an idea for a new one fictitious moment, I have five up there. I'd love a new idea. It has been a while since there's been a yeah. new one. That's for sure. Well, congratulations again on the release of No Matter How Improbable. Where can listeners find the book? They can find it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Indigo if you're in Canada, um, and some of your local bookstores. If you don't have it at your local bookstores, go and ask them because it's in a lot of catalogs so they can bring it in for you. They will be happy to bring it in for you. We always encourage people to go to indie bookstores if, that, that's, if that's their choice and request the books that aren't there. They're happy to get them and they get them really, really quickly. What's the best place for people to find you online? A Portia Adams Adventure, which is my blog website. You can also hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Karmic Angel, K-A-R-M-I-C Angel. And if you're having trouble getting the books, please do email me. I'm Angela.mystery at gmail.com. All right, Angela, thanks so much for being here. It's been fun. Thanks so much.